Good morning. This Sunday, we begin a new sermon series entitled Gifted. And our goal over the next three weeks is to walk through and get a biblical understanding of spiritual gifts, how we discover our gifts, how we work to develop them, and then deploy them in ministry. And as I was preparing for this sermon, it struck me that there are two ways of viewing our experience at church. Two ways. One is, I think, the predominant cultural view that many of us have, and the other is, I think, what you'll actually find in the words of the New Testament. And I think the best way to illustrate these, these extremely different perspectives on the church is to think about how we have meals together. When we have large gatherings of people, there are a couple ways to feed them. The first, I think, really rightly depicts the way most of us think about church, and that's to feed masses of people by hiring and contracting a catering company. See, the catering company in their kitchen with paid professionals prepares a meal, they deliver it to the location, and paid professionals distribute the food to the people. And that is in many ways the way the broader cultural depiction of church works. There are hired professionals and they do the work of ministry and minister to the community. And if we don't like the meal they serve, then the next time we need spiritual goods and services, we contract with a new spiritual catering company. Now, if you feel like I'm coming out a little strong this morning, I want you to understand I don't blame people for having that perspective because it's men like me who created and fed that misconception so that our personal kingdoms could get bigger. So if you walk in and you view church largely from what you're going to get out of the experience today, I don't blame you for that. But what I do want us to do is look at an alternative view of how the church works. So if we're not the catering company, how do we feed the masses? See, the church goes back to a throwback idea, the potluck dinner. Where everyone brings something. Everyone works and labors at home and they prepare something. And then we bring it together and there's this feast for everyone to enjoy. Sure, it's a little hodgepodgey, but it works. And everything was prepared sacrificially with love and care, except for the Kentucky Fried Chicken that you bought on the way because you forgot something. That was not prepared with love. That was prepared with grease. Which in the South is a lot like love. But, nonetheless, these are two ways of viewing the church. One where the paid professionals do what we pay them to do until we find someone else that does it better. And another that says we all bring something to the table. We all contribute. And together, we make things work. And so what what we want to do over this series is begin to talk about what it is that we each bring to the table. What it is that we each offer up that makes the church do what Jesus has called it to do effectively and fruitfully. You know, Jesus has given the church a simple mission. We've worded it this way at Tomball Bible Church, that we exist to glorify Christ by making mature disciples to reach the nations. If you read the New Testament, you're going to find that we did not get creative. We ripped that straight out of the words of Scripture. 
In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus gives the great commission. He says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the name of the Son and in the name of the Spirit. And I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so what you have here is you have a command sandwiched between a proclamation of who Jesus is and a promise of what Jesus will do. So the command is make disciples of all nations. And before Jesus said that, he says, but, but you're going to go in the name of the one who has all power and authority, the king of heaven and earth, and he is going to be with you as you go. And so one of the ways that Jesus delivers on his promise to be with his people as they make disciples is by sending the gift of the spirit to them and the spirit of God, giving them spiritual gifts to be used to advance the kingdom. God never commands His people to do something that He doesn't give them the resources to accomplish. So I want us to begin our discussion of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, the church in Corinth was a bit of a mess. And so it's a very long book, predominantly because uh, Paul had a lot of things to correct. And in the midst of this church that is run amok, Paul's corrected all of these things. And by the time we get to chapter 12, he's like, okay, guys, here's the next thing on the list. And in verse 1 of chapter 12, he begins this way. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray by, to mute idols. However, you were led Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So I want you to think about this passage for a moment. When the Apostle Paul begins, he begins with this statement. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed. Some translations will say, I don't want you to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. Now, when you hear a phrase like that, immediately you should be able to make some judgments about the people in the church of Corinth and their understanding of spiritual gifts. If Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, and so I'm going to teach you, we should understand and be saying, I don't want you to be ignorant any longer. Because currently, you are. So when the scriptures are going to begin to teach and instruct to pull people out of being uninformed and out of ignorance, we should understand that that's the current state. No mom ever walked into a spotless room and yelled at her kids, Son, clean your room. And I'm going to give you some free marital advice. If you wonder about whether or not you ought to go to counseling as a couple, here's the one sign that guarantees you need to be there. Your spouse comes to you and says, I think we need to be in counseling. If your spouse ever says that to you, the appropriate answer is not, no, I don't think we need to go to counseling. If your spouse believes that you ought to go, you probably need to be there. And when we read things like that in the scripture, the fact that the New Testament is going to say, hey, I don't want you to be ignorant anymore. We need to understand that the people had a lot of ignorance, misunderstanding and confusion about spiritual gifts. And I think that in many cases, the church today falls into the same camp, because I think what we see is a broad misunderstanding about who the Holy Spirit is and what he does, 
a specific misunderstanding about how spiritual gifts work and what they are, and a personal misunderstanding about what our gifts are, how to develop them, and then deploy them for kingdom purposes. So I think we begin this discussion of spiritual gifts with just a recognition that there's a lot of confusion about the Holy Spirit in general, about gifts in particular, and about my gifts personally. So with that in mind, what we want to do is begin just kind of slowly walking and give just a general overview of the gift of the Holy Spirit that Jesus has sent to us, how he works and ministers in our lives, and how the gifts that he has given us are intended to be used. So that's what our goal is for today. Over the coming weeks, we'll talk about how to use our gifts within the body of Christ and their intended function, and how that really transforms the way we view the church altogether. So that's the path. We've got a lot of ground to cover. So I want you to open your Bibles. If you go just a little to the right to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, as Paul initiates this next letter of Scripture to the church in Corinth. In verse 20... He begins to describe in really succinct language the gift of the Holy Spirit and his ministry to the people of God. In verse 20, it says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us who has put his seal on us and given us his Holy Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So all of this that the scriptures have just described is the blessing of receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, a couple of things we need to know about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a he. He is not some impersonal force like Star Wars. Rather, he is a, the third person of the Trinity with desire, will, and emotion. The Spirit of God can be grieved. The Spirit of God has will and desire for our lives, and He leads in us. And so when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about He, and we follow Him, and we relate to Him. And the Scriptures tell us the ministry that He has in our life in very quick fashion here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. The Scriptures tell us that He has established us. That by the work of the Spirit of God in us, we are established. That means we're strengthened, rooted, and grounded. We are made stable and strong by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who is given as a gift to us. Now, when we find in the Scriptures that we've been made strong, what the Scriptures are telling us is that we are not strong on our own, but that in our weakness, the Spirit of God grounds, roots, and establishes us. So He strengthens us to be stable and steady, to be fruitful in season and out of season. Beyond that, the Scriptures will tell us that He has anointed us, which is terminology we don't use a lot. You'll find the terminology of anointing throughout, particularly the Old Testament. You'll find it from time to time in the New Testament. But in modern Christianity, we don't even touch that word, usually at least in our area of the Christian movement, because some of our brothers and sisters use it in ways that we think are strange. Now, it's not healthy to think something is used weird and then to reject something that Scripture says. So we want to jump into anointing for a moment. When the scriptures say that we're anointed, there's a visual imagery of oil being smeared on something. That's why when they anointed a king, they would pour oil on him. And it was a visual imagery of the Spirit of God being poured out over that person. The, the prophet Joel spoke in advance of what would happen in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost as God pouring his Spirit out. 
So anointed, we, the Spirit of God has been smeared all over us, been poured on us as we receive the gift. In addition, the Scriptures say He has sealed us. He has sealed us. When we use the language of sealing, there's an imagery in mind of, of, of a letter or a transmission of information that a king would seal. And that seal would indicate his presence in its writing, his possession of it, his protection of the information, and his preservation. And what we look at when we look at this sealing is God's promise to guard and protect us. In 1 Peter, the scriptures will begin to lay out how this works in terms of our inheritance. And I love this text in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter would say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So I want you to think about this inheritance we're giving, this gift of eternal life with God. He says it is guarded for you. It is imperishable, undefiled, untainted, unfading. It doesn't diminish in its glory, but it is kept reserved in heaven for you. And that gift is guarded by God's mighty hand. And at the same time, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit supplying faith to us, we are guarded so that we persevere until that day. So if you want to kind of sort out how is it that once we get saved, God keeps us his and we remain saved. It's God guarding our inheritance while at the same time the Spirit supplying faith and guarding us until the moment that we receive it. And so the Spirit of God does this for us. He seals and secures our salvation for us. And with those three things, what I'd like to do is go backwards in the text for a moment and focus on this idea of anointing. This word we don't use. When you, when you study the Old Testament, you look at, at where anointings took place and the language of anointing, it's always connected to a task. Anointing sets apart a person for an assignment. So when the Spirit of God comes upon someone and they're anointed, they're not anointed in some generic sense, but rather it's them being called out and set apart by God to complete a purpose. And so the scriptures tell us that by the Spirit of God, we're all anointed. Everyone who believes in Jesus is anointed by the Spirit of God, which means we've been called out, set apart, and empowered for an assignment. This isn't some strange mystical language that we should be afraid of, but it's the way the Spirit of God works to empower and call men and women to serve. The question, I think, for us is how do we receive this Spirit? If the Spirit of God is the one who strengthens and establishes, who guards and seals and protects, who anoints, sets apart and empowers for service, what do I have to do to get that? And this is where confusion, I think, enters into the church in many cases because there are two extremes in our conversation about the Holy Spirit. And people tend to gravitate towards them. There's one extreme that uses the language of the Holy Spirit, the language of anointing, to do weird, crazy things. 
And another extreme, which is if we had a tendency, it would be over here, is in response to that, to act as if the Holy Spirit didn't exist because we don't want to be lumped in the camp of people who are strange. I'm going to give you just an example. If I'm driving through a community and I look at a church sign and the church sign says that it is a spirit-filled church, I know some things about it. And one, I'm probably not going to become a member there, but I will go up to have a Friday night service because it's going to be interesting. Now, that said, we should never shy away from the language of being spirit-filled. God wants every church and every Christian to be spirit-filled. The problem is, When they say it, they're meaning something different than we're meaning. And so we've had this negative tendency to say, I don't want to talk about that. And that's not healthy either. It's not healthy to define yourself purely in terms of what you're not. And so what we want to do is say, okay, what does the Bible say about the gift of the Spirit? Is this something that I have to get extra good to receive? Do I have to say the right prayer, go to the right service, do the right things for the right amount of time, and then I get some second blessing? Where, where, can, can I be a believer who simply doesn't have the Holy Spirit? And if so, what do I do to get it? Well, Galatians is going to answer that question as the Apostle Paul truthfully rebukes the people in Galatia for believing they were going to get some second blessing by being good. He says, you foolish Galatians in chapter 3, verse 1, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, you are now being perfected in the flesh? I want you to hear what the Apostle Paul says because it's insightful for us. If you want to receive the gift of the Spirit, what must I do? He says, you received it when you heard and believed the good news of Jesus. When you heard the gospel that you were a sinner deserving of God's righteous wrath and judgment, but that God, who is rich in mercy, sent His beloved Son to die in your place for your sin, and that He rose Him from the grave, proclaiming that that sacrifice was sufficient and exalting Him as Lord, you are saved, you belong to Him, and the moment that you believe that and embrace that in your heart, you were given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Everyone who believes. You heard, you believed, you received. That's the pattern. and, And we saw this. He said he is given to each, which means without exception, all who believe have received the gifting of the Holy Spirit. We have received a manifestation of the Spirit. The Scriptures say not for our purpose, but for the common good. But you will not find a Christian who does not have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. You will not find a Christian who does not have the Holy Spirit's gifts in them. If they do not have the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, they're simply not Christians, no matter what they check on the survey. This is one of the things that boggles my mind about surveys, is that, is that there are categories of Christians, apparently, in, in demographics. There's Christians and then there's born-again Christians. And I've always been blown away by the belief that there could be a Christian who wasn't born again. Because Jesus says in John chapter 3, no one enters the kingdom of heaven unless he be born again. So there's a difference in sometimes the words we use, but when it comes down to it, 
everyone who believes in Jesus has received the Spirit. That means He regenerates. He brings us back from spiritual death to spiritual life. He indwells us so that we become a temple of the Holy Spirit. He seals us, claiming us as His. He guards us. He anoints us and gifts us for ministry. He establishes and strengthens all believers at the moment of salvation. Now, there is a ministry that's progressive for us when we walk with Jesus. And the scriptures will call that the filling of the Spirit, which occurs progressively as someone yields their lives more and more to the Spirit's leading through the Word of God. So when I begin to hand over the reins of my life to the Spirit of God more and more in every area of life, He begins to fill me. And that is a depiction of Him taking control and the Spirit of God being in the driver's seat. But Galatians says you will not receive the Spirit through works and being a good Christian to get a second blessing. You received it when you believed. When you believe. Now you might have gifts that are dormant. You might have abilities that the Spirit of God has given you because you have not been diligent, that you're not using, and because of that you're not experiencing joy serving the Lord, but they're present. So that's how we receive them, but just because I've received them doesn't mean that I'm going to be using them immediately. So so I believe there are people in our midst that God has given the gift of teaching. But because they haven't developed their understanding of the Scripture, because they haven't worked to develop that gift, they're not using it. And to be honest, they shouldn't use it yet because they haven't done what's required to be prepared for that ministry. But the gift is present. And so what we have is this idea that we receive gifting from the Spirit of God at the moment of faith, yet there sometimes is a lag time between its receiving and it becoming functional. And I want you to see, first, this reality that everyone has received a gift from the Spirit. We'll go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It says, all of these, all of these gifts, all of these ministries are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he will. So I want you to see a few things here. Each one, all believers, have received spiritual gifts. And they have received them as God has seen fit to distribute them to them. Now, this is incredibly important for Christians to understand. Because at times, we will become um, discontented with the spiritual gifts that God has given us. And we'll begin to desire the gift that someone else has. And because of that, we'll neglect the gift that we have. And it's dangerous uh, because of really two things. When we start playing comparison and being discontented with the gifts we've been given, it's dangerous, one, because we believe God not to be wise enough to distribute gifts as necessary, and we think God might want to consider our perspective, and maybe we could coach him and give him some wisdom that he might have missed about how the gifts should be distributed. So we placed ourselves as if we are to be God's counselor. The second reason that we should be really concerned when we desire other people's gifts is that it's usually because of our ego. It's usually because we see someone else being fruitful in ministry while we seem to just be plowing away and not seeing anything and we'd like what they have. And so jealousy kicks in and we would like to get the strokes and the accolades that that person gets. Almost all of the time, desiring another person's gift is not driven by singing the kingdom advance. I can tell you one experience where where, where I believe that to be the case. And and I'll just be honest with you. Um, 
one of the most difficult things for me to do in ministry is 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 not just pastoral visitation in general. I'm okay with that. Uh, it's when it kind of gets pressed in, and particularly when I have found myself a number of times down at Texas Children's in the medicine. Um, and I thank God uh, for for people who who work in medicine. Uh, I was talking today with one of our ladies who's a nurse down there. Um, I couldn't do it. It shakes me. And, and, and I pray, honestly, I do. I pray every time I go down there, God, you give me the gift of healing. If, if you did, I'd empty that place, man. And, and I got to tell you, this is why I believe the guys on TV that claim to have the gift of healing are a joke. Because if you had it and you didn't go clear that cancer ward out at Texas Children's, there's something wrong with you and you don't know Jesus. But almost all of the time when we desire a gift that someone else has, it's a personal goal. It's some ego that we'd like to see ourselves elevated. And God doesn't want us to be elevated. The scripture said God exalts the humble. And what you don't realize is behind that gift and that fruitful ministry is a a person who probably for years just served in obscurity faithfully and humbly. And because of that, God's exalted them. Most of them didn't desire to be in the position they're in and place themselves there. So, So God distributes. And the first step is being content with the gifts he's given us. And then working to develop them. I love the letter of 2 Timothy because Paul loves Timothy like a son. It's an interesting relationship. You know, Timothy's this young man uh, that was raised by his mother and his grandmother. He didn't have a godly father in the home. And, and Paul's life intersects with Timothy's when Timothy's a teenager. And Paul becomes a father to him. And so when he writes 2 Timothy, because Paul's he's going to be uh, decapitated sometime soon. And so he writes this letter to his son. And I want you to hear in 2 Timothy 1 what Paul says about gifts, because I think it's powerful. He says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Paul says, Man, I prayed for you, Timothy. I laid hands on you. I blessed you. I gotta tell you, there's far too little of that blessing going on from generation to generation. Paul said, I blessed you. I laid hands on you. And God's given you something. Now you have to be diligent. Timothy, you have to choose. You have to choose to develop this gift so that it becomes useful. You've got a spark there, Timothy, but you need to work and feed it so that it becomes a flame. He says, you develop this gift. Be diligent. Be faithful. He's going to tell Timothy that. Timothy has a gift of teaching and Paul's going to tell him, be diligent. Be a workman unashamed. Do the work of an evangelist. You hear that? Paul is just telling him, strengthen your back, son. He's going to finish that. He's going to say, God didn't give you a spirit of timidity, but one of power. Just don't be afraid to use the gift, to work hard, to be a man of God. And so Paul blesses this young man. And he calls this gift out in him. But it has to be developed. And I think... This is incredibly insightful for us because I think some of us, we go through this, we go, yes, I want to develop my gifts, but how do I know what they are? What, what do I do to discover that? One of the things that we, we wanted to do during this series is just to get some people's stories. 
people who, who, who discovered they had a gift they didn't know they had and they, when they got to work in ministry. And, and just to hear from them how God moved in their life to make that a reality. And so we want you to hear Katie's story about God's gifting to her. The thing I love about Katie's story is, is this process of discovering your gifts. He said this often happens as we're serving. We just we see a need. We begin to try to pursue faithfulness, and God kind of steps in and just takes care of things. He gives us what we need, and whether that's a spiritual gift that, that we develop, or or other people and their giftedness that come alongside us. But but when we take a step of obedience, God just shows up, and he he does what he does. And so, if you're wondering, oh, I don't know what my gifts are, I don't know how to serve, start serving. Just take a step. And I'm not saying run off with your eyes uh, shut into some crazy new ministry, but just take a step where you're at to be faithful, to reach the people around you, to encourage someone, to serve someone. And God's going to begin to open up your eyes to see this is my sweet spot. This is where he's created me to serve. In addition to that experience, experiences just it helps us uncover two things. There's kind of two elements to how gifts are confirmed. One is the, the inward confirmation of the Spirit, and the other is the external confirmation of the body of Christ. And so this inward confirmation is this kind of growing passion and desire that's like, man, I, I really man, I, I feel God leading me here. And when I do this, man, I delight in it, and, and I love what God is doing when I step out in faith in this way. And the outward call is when other people come along, as Katie said, and they confirm, God's gifted you to do this. God's gifted you. And that's where Paul says, I laid hands on you, Timothy. We blessed you. We called you to this ministry. This is where I think we're lacking. One of the things that's happened to me over the years, as God's kind of softened my heart the longer I've been a pastor, is I used to get frustrated when people weren't obedient to Jesus' commands to be active in ministry. And then I realized that most of them weren't defiant. They were just discouraged. Most people weren't, weren't saying, I'm just not going to do what God says. They were saying, I don't have anything to offer. And we have far too many opportunities and far too many people who, who, who practice this idea of just blessing. One of the things that I think we're missed on, which has really kind of just been a, a difficult thing, and we're kind of shredded our culture in some ways, is that, is that we have believed that identity is defined by something within us, but by our tendencies and proclivities. If I have a desire to do something, that becomes who I am. And the Scripture's view is, is decidedly different from that because the Scriptures will say that your identity doesn't emerge from within you. It's rather something God proclaims over you. And the, the process of growing in faith is you learning to embrace and live out what God has proclaimed of you. And, and what happens when the, when the people of God confirm His gifting in us is they begin to, to affirm what God has already said to be true. In the Old Testament, we use the term blessing here. And it would happen where the patriarch of a family would bless his children. And, and blessing is not a small thing. It's not just like a prayer. It's a, it's a proclamation of what God has called you to, about God's identity for you. And it's so important in the Old Testament that, that Joseph not only receives a blessing from his father, but he's so concerned about his sons receiving blessing that he takes his two sons to, his grand, to their grandfather to bless them. Jacob was so concerned with being blessed that he swindles his brother out of it and then later is wrestling with an angel and tells the angel, I will not let go until you bless me. 
Blessing is is a statement of identity birthed in the Scriptures from the heart of God over His people. And it's when someone else stands over as a leader and says, God has gifted you. And, and, And I stand today to do that because I think many of us haven't been blessed in that way. To have someone speak the words of God over us to proclaim our identity and calling. And and I want you to know, based on not my authority, but the authority of Scripture, that by the Spirit of God you have been gifted and empowered and strengthened for fruitful ministry. Not for living a life that lacks joy and adventure. A life of just doing the right things and being good till Jesus comes home. You have been called and gifted by the Spirit of God to be a part of an earth-shaking movement as disciples are made around the nations. You, from where you sit in Tomball, have been gifted by God. In the spring of 1990... One of the greatest entertainers of the modern era, Sammy Davis Jr., laid on his deathbed. His body had been ravaged by throat cancer. He couldn't speak anymore. And in this day in 1990, a man named Gregory Hines went to see him. Gregory Hines was his protege. A younger man who grew up idolizing Sammy Davis Jr., who later in life was blessed to be mentored by him. And he goes to see Sammy Davis Jr. to say his goodbyes and pay his last respects. Recently was had this story shared with me and I couldn't wait to communicate it to you. Hines says he went to the door and he knocked timidly. He heard no reply because Sammy couldn't talk anymore. He opens the door slowly. He walks across the room, sits down next to Sammy. He begins to pour his heart out to the man who'd become a father to him. Tells him he loves him. Tells him how much he respects him. He tells Sammy about how much of an impact he's made in his life. How how he wouldn't be where he was that day if it hadn't been for his investment in him. He loved him. He held his hand. They both wept together. Sammy couldn't reply because of the cancer. Hines says after a moment, he hugged him and he kissed his cheek. Tears streaming down his face and he turned slowly to walk out of the room. Says as he was reaching for the door, he began to hear rustling behind him. And he turned around to see Sammy, who was always a skinny man, but his body had just been ravaged. He hadn't been out of bed in weeks and he was standing Tap dancing. Two weeks later, Sammy would die. The last dance step he ever did was to Gregory Hines. And he got back in bed. Hines said, that move was Sammy's way of saying, what you've been given, boy, take it. Do something. Sammy blessed him. Sammy called something out of him. 
I'm here today to tell you something. I don't care what anyone has ever told you. If you belong to Jesus, you have been gifted by the Spirit of God to do great things. To do great things. And we can trust those promises from God. We can trust them because He's proven Himself trustworthy. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul says he receives what he had been given. But on the night that Christ was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. And he blessed it, saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. After the dinner, he took the cup and he blessed it. And said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And in that, the scriptures ask us to look to the past where God demonstrated his unwavering love for us by sending his son to die in our place. And to look to the future, to God's promise to come for us. So that every day between now and then, we would receive the gift he's given us and be faithful with it. This gift is a reminder because every day you and I have to make a choice. A choice to discern and develop our gifts and a choice to deploy them. And God gave us this reminder to enable us to walk obediently with Him. This reminder that He loves us and He's proven it. This reminder that He's mighty and He's proven it. And the promise that He's coming for us. I want to ask the gentlemen that will be helping with the elements to come forward. Because as they do, we're, we're not overly concerned with the ceremonial aspects of this. What we're concerned with is your heart. The scriptures will continue in 1 Corinthians 11 and say that you should examine yourself before partaking. And so we want you to have a moment to do that. You'll receive the bread and the cup and we ask you to pray. To seek the Lord. And when you're ready to partake... And to join us in worship. Let's ask God's blessing on this time. Father God, we thank you that you are a good God. That you have invited us on this journey of making disciples to reach the nations. And that you have gifted us by your spirit. Father, I pray that this time of remembrance would strengthen and empower us to walk faithfully with you. To be diligent. In Jesus' name. Amen.